Strong Enough merch is now available. Go to strongenoughpod.com and see all the things that you can get to show your strong enough pride, as well as remind people and yourself that you are strong enough and you are worth it. Welcome to the Strong Enough Podcast, where we talk about the challenges and celebrate the triumphs of people just like you. I'm your host, Claudia. Today's guest is going to talk about his experience going completely blind at the age of five. As he grew up, he decided he was not going to let any challenge slow him down. He's here today to share his experiences so that we can all learn and break down stigmas of disabilities. Please help me welcome Dr. Kirk Adams. Dr. Adams, how are you today? I am wonderful today. It's great to meet you, and I'm looking forward to our talk here. I am as well. It is so nice to meet you. I have already been very impressed with you in the short amount of time that we have known each other, and I would love for the audience to be impressed as well. So if you would share a little about yourself, that would be wonderful. Sure. I am well. First off, I am talking to you from my home office in Seattle, Washington. I am a totally blind person. And if there are any of my blind brothers and sisters listening, I am a white male in my early 60s. I have what I call silver hair. I'm sitting in an office chair. I have a nice plant behind me. And um, I became blind as a five-year-old in kindergarten when my retinas both detached. I became uh, went from a sighted kid to a blind kid basically overnight. Uh, my parents had never met a blind person before. They were both very, they were in their mid twenties. I was born when they were in college, and they um, were told I wasn't allowed to go to the public school where I had gone to kindergarten. That I would need to go to a special school for blind children. And they uh, were living north of Seattle. They visited the Washington State School for the Blind. Did not like what they saw there as far as academics. And uh, someone told them that, that the Oregon school was great, so they. They quit their jobs and moved the family to Oregon so I could go to that school. And uh, that's where, as a six, seven, eight year old, I learned um, my blindness skills, how to read and write Braille and, and use, use a white cane and type on a typewriter. And uh, most importantly, to love my body as a blind kid and to be confident that, uh, moving through the world and getting all the bumps and bruises that first and second graders get. And uh, really, really got a sense of, of confidence that they can't um, can't credit enough. It was it was a great thing that they did for me, um, moving us down so I could get that experience. You know, it's tough enough being a child and growing up and trying to find your place in the world, gain confidence, experience new things. How much more difficult do you think that was for you as a blind child? Well, at the School for the Blind, Oregon State School for the Blind, it was great. I was with 120 other blind kids. And, um, you know, it was, it was the 60s. It was run by some really well-educated hippies who uh, took us horse, horseback camping in the Three Sisters Wilderness area and building uh, snow forts on Mount Hood. Uh, exploring the the tide pools on the Oregon coast, I I can remember um, backpacking into a wilderness area where there was a little cabin and uh, sawing wood with a two person crosscut saw, and um, 
you know, just given so many experiences and so many um, challenges that were developmentally appropriate for, for a child my age. And then when I started in public school in fourth grade, it was very, very different. I was the only blind child um, in my schools from fourth grade on. And it was very restrictive, you know, physical PE class, physical education class. Uh, you know, often I was just standing on the side while the other kids played game, you know, games with balls, volleyball, basketball, etc. Um, so there weren't there weren't very many accommodations made for me as a Braille reader. Um, sometimes I'd get my books in Braille on time. Sometimes not. Sometimes I'd have a different edition than the other kids. But I, I did okay through elementary and then junior high got tougher as social social things became more and more important. Um, I actually would go to middle school, Mark Twain Junior High in Silverton, Oregon. I'd put my cane in my locker because I don't I didn't want to stand out and look different because I had a white cane. So instead I would um, you know walk around totally blind without my cane, bumping into people and falling down and uh you know, it was it was a tough time. And then high school, um, I grew up in small rural towns in the Northwest. And, uh, you know, when kids turned 16, they got two things. They got a driver's license and they got um, usually got some sort of job. So I, I didn't get either of those things. So it was quite, quite isolated, um, age 16, 17, 18 years old. So um, a lot of distress, a lot of sadness. And then uh, I was given a full ride scholarship to um, a liberal arts college, Whitman College in Walla Walla, and uh, went there and met a young lady the first week who we've now been married 37 years and have two wonderful active citizens, adult children in their 30s. And um, I was back in an environment where I could thrive again because uh, the campus was very navigable. Uh, it was in Walla Walla. Uh, there was really no place, <laughs> no place to go and nothing to do but but study and go to class and uh, um, really had a, a transformational experience there again. So I guess my bookends, first, second, and third grade at the Oregon State School for the Blind and then going to college at Whitman were kind of the, the two high points on that arc um, from you know, age six to 21. In the time between that, where the accommodations, you know, weren't really appropriate and you didn't have the same opportunities, did you feel anger and resentment? And if so, how have you been able to get past that? Well, I don't know that I am completely past that. I certainly have. Um come to terms with the uh, reality that I will have this visual impairment for the rest of my life. I've also come to understand that um, the impairment doesn't define me and that most of the challenges arise because the environment that I live in was not designed for people with impairments. So. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person with a disability when my impairment doesn't allow me to um, have a good fit with the environment. So 
a very small example. When I was running the American Foundation for the Blind or running the Lighthouse for the Blind here in Seattle, um, if I was running a board meeting and I had my agenda and my financials and my reports in Braille, which I can read as well and quickly as a sighted person can read print, then I, my visual impairment did not cause me to be in a disabling situation. But if I didn't have my Braille and you handed me a bunch of print that I couldn't read, you know, then my impairment puts me in a disabling situation uh, because of the uh, environment of the printed material. So that that's really helped me understand um, that there are certain models of the way people view the world and the, the traditional model of disability is a medical model that um, if you have an impairment, you're, you're broken, um, you're not as whole as a, as a person without impairments. And if you know, medical science can't repair uh, that impairment, then um, you know, by definition, you're, you're less than. And now I understand through the social model that uh, it's, it's not me, it's uh, the way things are constructed, the digital environment, the physical environment, transportation systems, et cetera. So that, that understanding has helped me uh, think about things much differently. And um, I've also learned about community and advoca advocacy. I was very isolated living in rural, rural towns and not being around any other blind people not knowing any blind adults who were thriving, not having any role models, uh, not knowing how to advocate for myself. Um, one example, uh, Snohomish High School, where I graduated here in Washington State, there was probably 30 of us who were the kind of the college-bound kids. So senior year, I walked in the first period, we had physics, second period, math analysis, and third period, chemistry. And I walked into the chemistry class and the teachers just very clearly and firmly said, oh, no, you cannot take chemistry. That is a safety risk. Um, you need to go to the office, get assigned to a different class. So, um, you know, I went home very upset. My parents were both teachers and I told them this story and they said, well, if Mr. So-and-so says, then well, that's that's the way it is. So that we didn't as a family know how to advocate. Uh, now. I know blind people who have PhDs in chemistry, who have um, been entrepreneurs and use their chemistry skills to build and sell companies. Um, I know blind people who teach chemistry. So just, just little examples of what I've learned um, through the years that have put me in a uh, just a, a much firmer footing uh, as a blind person, um, given me um, ways ways to think, ways to learn, uh, ways to put support systems together. And also the realization that um, if you read a book like The Talent Code, the way we develop strengths as human beings is through addressing challenges and overcoming challenges. And the realization that my lived experience as a blind person has given me opportunities to develop some extraordinary strengths as far as resilience and perseverance and creative problem solving and the uh, uh, ability to, to work with teams, the ability to communicate with all different kinds of people. So I just, um, I've just, I guess I've just achieved 
deeper and deeper levels of understanding of kind of how things fit together and how uh, as a as a person with with a significant physical impairment how i can uh, how i can address um address my life one of the things that you mentioned earlier was learning that it wasn't you you know, it was your environment at times that was the problem. A lot of people who don't have a disability struggle with that. You know, they struggle with that ability to be confident in themselves and not see themselves as the problem and look outward to change things. So what was that like for you when you realized that and kind of took ownership that, you know, you were you and there was nothing wrong with you and you mm -hmm. could succeed no matter what you were dealing with. Well, one, uh, my, my, my great interest is to make it easier for other blind people, especially kids who are going to grow up and become blind adults. I'd like them to have an easier time th than I did. And I'm a, I'm a researcher. I, I have a, PhD in leadership and change. I did an ethnographic study of blind adults who self-identified as successfully employed in large American corporations. And one of the common themes was all of the people I interviewed had a very strong um, internal locus of control, which meant they felt in their bones that they could create their own way, could forge their own path as opposed to an external locus of control, which when people feel in their bones, they're being acted upon and there's not much they can do about things. So all of the people I interviewed had had some sort of transformative experience or set of experiences. Um, many of them in the teen years, many of them having to do with physical experiences. Um, there's one woman who uh, was a very successful executive for 40 plus years at a major telecommunications company. And she recalled that when she was 10 years old, she and her twin sister were sent off to camp. And when it came to horseback riding, the people at the camp wouldn't let her ride the horses because they felt it was too dangerous for a blind, little blind girl to ride a horse. So she and her sister snuck out of the cabin at night, got out a couple of horses. And went writing and uh, she you know just recalls the sense of freedom and exhilaration of you know write, writing side by side with her, her sister you know, on this horse through the night um, another uh, young uh, person a very successful attorney a general counsel for a company that everyone knows the name of um, he grew up in a neighborhood in New York where he fell in with a group of 12 and 13 year old boys who did bicycle tricks they would ride ride their bike and then stand on the handlebars that that kind of thing so he did that with them as a blind kid um another woman had been hiding her blindness denying it not using a cane not using blindness skills and fell down a flight of stairs um at a construction site she'd wandered into and got very severely injured she was sent to a vocational rehabilitation um, center and they took 
her snow skiing and she learned how to snow ski and became a very competent snow skier in her late teens. So looking back at my life, I really got that at the school for the blind in, in Oregon as a six, seven, eight year old. So the, I, I got that feeling in my bones um, that I could confidently move through space as a blind person, that I could love my body as a blind person. And um, so that that was a gift um, that I was given through no uh, doing of my own. The other gift was my strong blindness skills. Um, you know, research shows the stronger your blindness skills, the, the more likely it is that you'll thrive in life. So, you know, I read and write Braille. I learned it at the same speed as in you know, a sighted first grader would. So I you use it just as um facilely as a sighted, you know, good strong reading sighted person uses print. So I, I got I got those two things. And then the other thing I got uh was high expectations. And my parents had very high expectations. The school for the blind had high expectations. My parents expected my dad's about was he's passed away now, but he was a basketball coach for forty years. He they never wanted to see anything less than an A on a report card. They expected their kids to be involved in athletics and extracurricular activities. So I, I had I had those kind of three pillars of uh, being able to thrive as a blind adult gifted to me. Have you seen the accommodations in places like public schools improve since you were there? Oh my gosh, yes. Well, just the ADA, you know, the Americans with Disabilities Act is our Civil Rights Act. It was passed in 1990. And although um, you wish people would do the right things for the right reasons, um, the law is very helpful. <laughs> so compliance um, requiring um, ramps uh, for wheelchairs, uh, curb cuts on streets, um, Braille signage, you know, the, the things that were required by law have shifted mindsets. You, you would no more think about building a new building without wheelchair accessibility, um, you know, than, than uh, as my wife would say, than the man in the moon. You would, you would just <laughs> not think, you would just not think about, you know, building a building that didn't have, you know, accessible bathrooms, etc. Et like the curb cut, you know, um, as you walk through a city street and you have the little ramp that goes down into the street on the other side, a little ramp that goes up to the sidewalk. Those are curb cuts. They used to not be there. They used to just be straight up and down 90, 90 degree curbs. Uh, wheelchair people uh, occupied the federal building in San Francisco. They got out of their wheelchairs and dragged themselves up the steps of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. They used nonviolent protest to make changes in laws and regulations requiring curb cuts. Now, something like less than 1% of curb cut usage is by people in wheelchairs. It's bicyclists and skateboarders and parents with strollers and people with grocery carts, et cetera, et cetera. So that, um, what was an accommodation to um, adapt an environment for people with uh, an impairment requiring um, 
use of a wheelchair has now become something that's useful for everybody. Um, closed captioning was developed by the deaf community um, to be able to enjoy television and other video. And now I just just saw a report that over half people who view um, streaming media turn closed captioning on because it gives a better, fuller experience. Um, audiobooks. <laughs> I, I ran the American Foundation for the Blind, which was Helen Keller's organization. And in the, in the 1930s, AFB lobbied the Library of Congress to create a program to record books onto phonograph records, which were called talking books, so that blind people could enjoy literature. And uh, there's an article in the New York Times in 1947 interviewing the head of AFB where he said, well, you know, sighted people are never going to want to listen to a book <laughs> and when they when they can read it in print. And you, you know how that goes now. So, right. You know, audio, audio books are just ubiquitous. So um, how I noticed changes? Absolutely. Is there a long, long way to go? Absolutely. If you look at outcomes of kind of measure, measures of thriving, my, my main passion is creating um, career opportunities for people who are blind. And just the fact of the matter is that if people are blind and have other significant disabilities, there are only about 35% of us are in the workforce. And um, for the general population, about 70% of people who are working age are in the workforce. So it's about half. And if you look at the official unemployment rates, Bureau of Labor Statistics, you know, people who are actively seeking jobs, the unemployment rate for people who are blind um, and have other significant disabilities is always double um, the general population. So if it's 4%, in general, it'll be 8% people with disabilities seeking employment. So it's all, it's always um, half as good or twice as bad, however you want to look at it. And that leads to uh, facts that uh, home ownership is one-tenth uh, that of the general population. And a third of blind people live in poverty. So although we've come a long, long way in some very fundamental areas such as employment, we haven't made um, we haven't made very much progress in uh, you know, the last decades. What would you like to see as our next step as a society to make improvements? What what would you like to to have happen before you leave this earth? Yeah, well, I, I'd like to reach a tipping point of a mindset shift around disability as a uh, liability and um, view it from a strengths-based um, lens. So I, as I talked earlier, the lived experience of blindness or any significant disability allows people to develop um, strengths in, in areas that are extraordinary compared to the norm. So when you when I talk to employers, and ask them what type of people they're looking to hire. They say you know, people who are uh, will be in, you know, enthusiastic and people who will embrace challenge and people who are resilient and self-motivated and creative and solve more problems than they create and know how to work in teams, uh, 
etc. And I say, well, if you find the person who's uh, made their way through this life with a significant disability, they will have developed all of those things. And um, so I, I'd like uh, the progress we've made in diversity, equity, inclusion in general to continue for organizations to understand if they are inclusive, they'll be a stronger, better organization. And to have that thinking encompass people with disabilities along with other, other differences. What do you feel like has been your biggest challenge in working with people who are disabled and, and helping them to get jobs other than the rest of the people, you know, kind of not having the right attitude and looking, mm -hmm. you know, not at strengths. But yeah. is there something that you deal with a lot with people who have those significant disabilities where, you know, they don't have the confidence or, or there's yeah. something going on that we would like to see improve? Yeah, well, let me. So there's a demand side and a supply side. So we'll, we'll just say the demand side is employers who have open jobs they need to fill. They're trying to win the competition for talent. And then the supply side are the people with disabilities. And so it's a complex problem. So there's not, not a simple answer, but there are supply side factors and, and demand side factors. So on the <clears throat> employer side, well, let me start with, with the people with disabilities. Um, the flip side of all those things I got. So not everyone was given the proper training in techniques and skills and use of technology. Now, I was totally blind to the first grader. There was no question this kid has to learn how to read Braille. Um, most people who are visually impaired aren't totally blind. They have some usable vision. So often there's a question of, can they use magnification? Now people are saying, can they just listen to stuff? Do they, does this kid need to learn to read Braille? So it was very clear the skills I needed to get and I, I got them. You know, the next is that internal locus of control and not every person is supported in a way to have that confidence ingrained in them. And then uh, not everyone has a situation where they live with a set of high expectations. So if not much is expected of you, um, you may very well internalize those expectations and not expect very much of yourself. So there, there are those, there are those things. Um, from the demand side, the employer side, there's attitudes, there's misperceptions, there's fears, there's lack of understanding, um, which we can work on. But I, I find the greatest um, opportunities, greatest barriers and greatest opportunities are because the it's structural. So we, we have a vocational rehabilitation system in our country funded by the Department of Education. Uh, every state has vocational rehabilitation agencies that are federally funded, whose mission is to help people with disabilities become employed. And, you know, there's research that shows that of, of the companies that have formally stated they want to hire more people with disabilities, less than 10% are connected with our vocational rehabilitation system. 
And then there are nonprofits throughout the country who have a mission of helping people in the community with disabilities be employed, and they have philanthropic dollars and um, individual donors and foundation grants, and they are constantly saying they can't find enough employment opportunities um, to place their their folks in. So, um, book called Forces for Good, which um, isn't a page turner, but it examined social causes that truly had transformational impact, uh, habitat for, for humanity being one. Um, and the conclusion was that in order to really make anything big happen, you have to align all the stakeholder groups. So you have to have government involvement, corporate, nonprofit, and the community. So, so that's what I do. I consult with companies who would like to intentionally accelerate inclusion of people with disabilities in order to, I say, supercharge their bottom line of business results. And they don't necessarily know how to do it. So I go in and do a discovery process, interview their leaders, um, talk to other people in the community, and come back with recommendations. And the re recommendations are always around some framework of let's get the right people from government and the right people from the corporate community and the right nonprofit folks and the right community groups together. And let's um, align ourselves and see, see what each group can bring to the table in order to improve the employment outcomes for people with disabilities because they all share the same goal. Um, they're all doing things. Um, we're not getting the results we need. And I see it very clearly through my 30 years of being in the space as a, a lack of alignment, and a lack of coordination between these different structures. You know, a lot of kids who grow up in high expectation households are very frustrated um, in, in the moment. You know, they, they wish that their parents would let off a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like for you, that was really a blessing. You know, that was one of the things that that set your course right. was that your parents, no matter what, they had high expectations from you. What did that teach you as you became a parent? That's a, that's a great question. So for, first of all, from where I sit now, it, it's a blessing at the time. My parents had high expectations, but they did not have uh, a lot of uh, know-how on how I was to accomplish these things. <laughs> um, they didn't offer a lot of psychosocial support, um, so a lot, a lot of crying in my room during during my growing up years, and a lot of frustration. But again, developed a lot of strengths. Um, my kids um, are wonderful active citizens with a heart for social justice and huge hearts and compassion. And um, my wife is African-American, I'm Caucasian, so the, our children are biracial, they identify as African-American. So they just grew up around so many different kinds of people. I was working, for instance, at a lighthouse for the blind with people who are blind and deafblind and blind with other disabilities. and. You know, they would go to social events with a lot of 
people with disabilities. So they just grew up around the the spectrum of of humanity in American society. Um, parent uh, relatives living in small rural Texas, um, relatives living in small rural Washington State. A lot of outdoors activities, fishing, crabbing, camping, um, and they were given some levels of responsibility, I think, that some other children uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have, uh, in particular, having a blind parent. Um, they, they learn things like how to be a good-sighted guide huh. from, you know, age five, um, how to be mindful of if they're guiding me to, to be cognizant, you know, I need to let dad know there's a step I need to be looking up to make sure he doesn't hit his head on a branch as we walk down the sidewalk. Um, everyone uh, describing things to me on television. And uh, our daughter's three and a half years younger than our son. And my wife recalled one time where they were watching TV together and Rachel was describing what was going on on the screen. And Tyler said, Rachel, you don't need to do that. Dad's not here. So, um, so they, they had some elements in their life that also were very unique. And, uh, I think it's served them, served them very well. Um, Rachel, we moved to New York city in 2016 when I, um, was hired by the American Foundation for the Blind, and I think our daughter was 26 or 27 at the time, and she came to live with us in our teeny apartment in Brooklyn for six months. She was opening an office for her company, and she came home uh, from being in Manhattan one night and said, Dad, there was a blind lady, and she was just looking around with her cane, and I could tell she didn't know where she, exactly where she was. So I went up, went, went up to her and said, can I offer you an elbow? <laughs> she said, you should have seen the look of joy <laughs> came across her face and uh, she told me where she wanted to go and she was one block off and I led her there and I just you know she thanked me for you know, giving her that awareness and that skill to do that you know Manhattan is scary for sighted people to try to navigate through <laughs> so I can't imagine trying to do that without the gift of sight, what challenges have you experienced where, because I'm thinking there's nothing that you won't try. So has there been a point where you're like, yeah, I don't know if I should do that or not? Um, not really, but I've I've certainly approached things deliberately. So taking New York as a, as an example, there's a, there's a skill set called orientation and mobility. Mobility is the techniques to use either a cane or a guide dog you know, to be able to travel. Orientation is how do you know where you are? And how do you figure out to get where you're going? And we um, were in corporate housing on 43rd Street between 8th and 9th. So Hell's Kitchen, fairly near Port Authority in Times Square, and uh, the office was down by Madison Square Garden, so you know seven or eight blocks. And um, American Foundation for the Blind hired a professional orientation and mobility instructor to help me learn the route to the office. And I met her 
at the apartment the first day and she said, well, how, how was your experience, you know, traveling in heavy trafficked areas? And I lived in Seattle. So I said, pretty good. And then, then we turned the corner on 7th Avenue at about 7.30 in the morning. And I stopped and I said, um, the, I, this is, I've not experienced this before. So we're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to give me the basics here of, of how to do this. So, you know, the first thing she said was in New York, don't, you're, you're trained to listen and you're trained when people cross the street to cross, to cross with them. And she said, don't, don't trust the pedestrians in New York. They will cross against the light. Don't listen to them. You got to wait to listen for the actual traffic to move. When the cars are going the way you want to go, you you flow across with with the the moving vehicles. And then uh, when we finally decided to live in Park Slope, um, there were two subways: the F train to J Street MetroTech, to the A train into Penn Station, and up to the office. And she traveled with me uh, both ways for a week, and you know taught me kind of the nuances of the stations and the transfers and. You know, after I left J Street Metro Tech, I listened. The doors are going to open two two times on the left side, then the next two times on the right side, then on the left side, then on the next left side. That's where I get out. And she also taught me if you ever get confused, uh, get out, go up to the street, and get a cab. So, uh, <laughs> um, so that was that. I love that last piece of advice. There's always a backup plan. If that's right you need it. Well, we have had a lot of guests on this podcast that deal with some type of disability, whether it's Uh chronic illness or otherwise. I would love to hear one piece of advice from you for people who are struggling with a significant disability. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they just feel that the the heaviness, the weight, the the anger the resentment what's yeah. one piece of advice you would give to them oh um join join community i mean so much easier now with um social media and search engines and facebook groups and um i i was very isolated as i said before we didn't know any other blind people i didn't know any blind adults i didn't know anyone who'd gone through what i was going through really after i left the school for the blind so I, I would say find community. Um, there, are, there are other people who are experiencing similar dynamics. There are people who walked that path before you. There are any problem that you have faced, there's someone who's figured it out. And uh, you know, please, please don't stay isolated. Um, reach out. There's an association, a society, a group, a club for everything that you're interested in. So, and then get get involved outside your your um, impairment group too. Um, you know, I tell parents of blind kids, you know, if you, you want your child to thrive, um, get them involved in in whatever they're interested in at the time. Um, have them join. Have them volunteer. Have them get on a committee. Um, so that's that's my broad advice is find find community. I love that advice. Well, before I let you go, 
we are going to take a quick turn. We are going to talk about something that you probably have not talked about on a podcast before, I'm guessing. We are going to talk about tattoos very briefly. And I know that you do not have any tattoos. I do not. Uh, I have some amazing tattoos. I have enough for both of us, Dr. Adams. But what I would love... Both of my children are uh, Ah, inked. Okay, perfect. Well, maybe we'll ask about one of them in a second. If you were going to get a tattoo, what would you get? Well, my dad, a huge part of my life, he passed away um, two years ago. And we're burying his ashes at Lake Quinault out on the Olympic Peninsula in October. And he grew up in a very small town called Montesano, Washington. He had a brother who was 11 months older. And when he was a junior in high school, his mother sent he and his brother to Seattle with a certain amount of money to buy school clothes. And they um, got diverted and ended up uh, somehow with no school clothes, but with tattoos. And my dad was named Jim, and he had a tattoo on his left shoulder that said Jim, and <laughs> has some flowers around it. And uh, um, I think I would get my tattoo there, and I think it would be a rainbow trout because that is an activity that has brought our family together year after year after year, extended family, both ac- actual siblings and relations, but also extended friend group. Um, my parents lived on a small lake up, uh, about an hour north of Seattle. And opening day of trout fishing season, end of April, everyone would gather. And there was always a new grandchild or a great nephew. There was always a you know, three-year-old kid catching their first fish and everyone making a huge to-do about it. Uh, so I think, I think I'd have a trout and I'd probably have, um, my wife's name is Roz, daughter Rachel, son Tyler. So our Two R's and a T, uh, somehow incorporated in that because they're you know, the most Im- important people in my life. I love the amount of thought that you have put into this in a short time, and I feel like, feel like maybe there could be a tattoo in your future. Mm, well, <laughs> I tell you, I tell you, Claudia. The fact of the matter is, I had a lot of eye surgeries between age five and twelve. I was in the hospital a lot. And um, I'm pretty phobic of anything resembling a needle or a surgical instrument or a, um, that type of experience. So may, maybe I'll get a temporary tattoo sometime. There you go. We Yes, we can make that happen. Well, Kirk, where can people find you? So if they want to learn more about... Yeah disability in the workforce if they want to take you out for a cup of coffee or maybe go trout fishing where can they find you well linkedin i'm very active on and have been for 16 years i i have a very lovely um set of connections on linkedin so if you search for me kirk adams my company is called innovative impact llc so linkedin's a great way i have a uh newly created website innovativeimpact.consulting and um, those would be two great ways and I would welcome any conversation anyone would like to have that could help us all move forward in uh, accelerating inclusion of people with disabilities. I have this 
image of a uh, warm crackling bonfire and a cold night and a circle of people sitting around the fire and other people out in the cold uh, who aren't um, enjoying the warmth and camaraderie and how how can we make that fire big enough and the circle big enough and create a sense that everyone can uh, feel confident in stepping uh, into the circle. So if anyone wants to help make that happen, I'm, I'm here to help too. I will see you at the campfire. All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kirk, for your time today. I really appreciate you being willing to share about your own personal experiences so that we can help others. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media so you'll never miss what's going on. Remember, until next week, you are strong enough and you are worth it. Thank you for listening to the Strong Enough Podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform by searching Strong Enough. And on YouTube, we're on the Spear Talk channel. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Strong Enough Pod. If you have suggestions for an upcoming episode or a future guest, please reach out at strongenoughpod at gmail.com. Remember, you are worth it.